Father, we come here this morning, uh, first of all, because we're cold and it's nice to be indoors, <laughs> but uh, we come here to be moved by your spirit, by the worship of your name for what your son has done. And also we come uh, to join with other believers to have our hearts encouraged that as we leave here, Lord, our actions would reflect the character that you've planted in us, that you died to give us. And we just ask that, Lord, you would be present in such a way as to magnify your name and your presence among us. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Doug. If you're new or visiting or watching online, and we are in the middle of a uh, four-part series on stewardship, looking at various things that we steward. So uh, the, the definition that Don laid out for us last week is up on the screen. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. I have the task this morning of talking about time, a popular topic that most of us uh, have struggles um, managing. I know I'm like the worst. So here we go. During the French Revolution, revolutionaries, in their attempt to de-Christianize society and increase productivity, experimented with a 10-day week. This was from 1793 to 1805. And similarly, during the Soviet era in Russia, the communists experimented with a five-day week from 1929 to to 1940, and they actually dubbed it uh, the Continuous Production Week. There were rolling days off so that there was never a time where something wasn't being produced or done. In both cases, there was a notable drop in work productivity and uh, a decline in mental health and wellness. So, as you can imagine, both the French and the Russians reverted back to a seven-day week. Now, this isn't new. Uh, A.J. Swoboda points out that in 1370, King Charles V ordered all of Paris to orient its time, its society rather, around the newly invented mechanized clock. All private and industrial affairs were to be dictated by this mechanical clock, which rang every 60 minutes from the royal palace downtown, like clockwork. You can even see pictures of this clock as the oldest clock in France if you go and search online. Now, this presented a huge problem for the church, which for centuries had its own time and calendar of sorts. And it was built around liturgical, or another way to say ritual practices, things like meals and scripture reading and prayer. Now, we know the story. Both the church and culture at large decide, decided to orient their time around the clock, measured time. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but it certainly has had its consequences. Cultural critic and, and journalist from the 1980s, uh, Neil Postman, when commenting on this reality, said this, the church began to give material interests precedent, precedence over spiritual needs when it began to adjust to the clock. So how we understand this gift of time is a critical question for us, and it must be engaged. You can't just say, well, that doesn't really impact me. Are you breathing? Do you have a pulse? Guess what? Time impacts you. Uh, every one of us, 24, 365, is given the same amount of time. How do we use it? And so I think more important 
than French and Russian revolutionaries, more important than Neil Postman, more important than King Charles V, is what God has to say about time. And even more important than that is how his son Jesus showed us its proper use. So if you get nothing else today, maybe walk away with this one simple fact. How I use time shows my deepest allegiance. We're going to be looking at this concept, two thoughts really, that God is the one who creates and divides time, and then Jesus is the one who perfectly uses time. So starting with God created and divided time, you could turn in your Bibles, we're going to kind of be jumping around a little bit, but you can turn your Bibles to the very first page, Genesis chapter 1. Really simple. Scroll down a few verses, and it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then fast forward a little bit. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth, all the way through the seventh day. So before creation, we see that everything was formless and void. And then God spoke, and there was light, and there was dark, and there was heavens and earth, and there was land and plants, and there was sun, and there was moon and stars and birds and sea creatures and animals and, yes, humans. Time didn't exist, and then it did, because God said so. So God created it. You can see in Genesis chapter 2, just the first three verses. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested, or sorry, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So, real simply, God worked six days, then God rested one. So you could say, in a nutshell, that when God looks at time, it's for work and rest, or I think even more helpfully, it's for doing and being. It's just simple. God, God doesn't have all these categories for use of time. You're either doing something that is productive and con contributing to the flourishing of humanity and society, or you're being and you're receiving from him. Those are the uses of time in broad categories. Now, most of us, from a truth and practice perspective, most of us don't need to be told about doing, do we? Most of us, I, well, okay, let's leave teenagers out for a minute. Maybe teenagers need to be told to be motivated and do things. Maybe adults need to be told to be motivated and do things. I know I certainly do at times. But most of us don't need to be told, hey, um, you need to do something. We have jobs, we have hobbies, we have things we enjoy, we have places we're going, we have schedules that we fill to the brim and overflowing. Most of us don't need to be told to stop doing, or rather to stop being. It's more to stop doing. So I think being is the hardest thing for us. So maybe here's a question to consider or two questions from a, from a practice perspective. How does my use of the gift of time actually show my allegiance? And you might be thinking or wondering, well, uh, what do you mean? Okay, 
I think if you show me, and this is kind, and it's also turned back on myself, okay? So I'm preaching to myself. If you show me your calendar and your money, I will show you your allegiances with regard to time. Where are you spending your money and where are you spending your time? Those will tell me more than anything what your greatest and deepest allegiances are. They just will. Are you the one who has young kids and you're consumed with that time and that stage of life? Are you the one who has uh, kids who are in four different sports schedules and your whole weekend and your whole weeks are ruled by practices and games and travel and all those things? Are you the one who's an empty nester and all you can think about is your next vacation? Your budget and your time, your calendar, tells me what your deepest allegiances are. So if God's gift to us is time, how am I showing my allegiance either to him or to self? And then that second question, and this one's probably the harder one for me, do I even have margin to enjoy the gift? Do you remember um, Christmas morning, like when you were younger? Uh, I'll never forget this. There was one Christmas that I got like a model train set. I love like little model trains, building, clicking things together. And, um, and ours was, the, the one that I got, was kind of like built around um, like a, a more newly designed um, train that was like a bullet train, right? And so I, I was able to set this thing up. But I remember the morning of opening the gift, right? It would have been torture if dad and mom would have been like, here's your gift. And I'd be like, all right. And I'd tear it open. And then mom would grab it and set it aside. Okay, now we're going to go to the next thing. Whoa, wait a minute. You just gave me a toy model train set and you're telling me don't build it, don't play with it, just like let's go to the next thing and like make taffy or whatever we used to do. I can't remember. But like, wouldn't that be awful? But this is what we do with time. God gives us this gift of time and then I I leave no margin in my life to actually just be in his presence. And we wonder why we have shallow answers to deep questions. We wonder why we can't talk about deep things. We wonder why we can't connect on a deeper and more meaningful level because all we're doing is crowding it out and wringing it out and just going, okay, 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 what's next, what's next, what's next? And we're frantic and we're hurried and we're rushed and God is like, slow down, slow down. There is something about how you enjoy and understand the gift of God in Christ when you pump the brakes. Slow down. There's just, it's just not easy to do that. So do I even have enough margin to enjoy this gift? So how I use time shows my deepest allegiance. So God creates it. God divides it. And now we're going to be looking at how Jesus perfectly used time. Now, in the Greek, there are two words primarily that are used uh, to denote time. The first is the most familiar one that you're probably aware of. It's called chronos, which is uh, where we get our word chronology. And this is really uh, time as it's governed by the idea of the earth's sweep around the sun. God himself ordained this measure of days and seasons and years uh, when he put things into motion on day four of creation. But another word for time, and it's also used in the New Testament, is kairos. 
And this speaks more to specific God-ordained times throughout history. Sometimes it's called the right time or the appointed time. You'll see that in, in Titus 1, 3. But kairos is, is God's definition. It's his dimension. It's marked out by specific attributes or occurrences. Things like in Mark 1, 15, when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus. And then there's this proclamation, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The time, the kairos, the, the, the inbreaking, the point, the marking feature. Or in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not at an inopportune time, not at a time that wasn't marked by anything, not at a time that somehow many would miss, but at the right time. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, when Paul says, now is a favorable time, now is the day of salvation. There are some here. There are some watching online that have this understanding of like, wait a minute, I've, I've heard that there will be a reckoning for how I used my time. I've heard that there will be a reckoning for the deepest allegiances that I have and whether or not they aligned with the God of the Bible. There will be a time for that. And so Paul says now is a favorable time. Are you hearing the gospel? Are you feeling drawn to him? Are you wanting to repent and confess your sin in order to be in right, loving union with God? Yes, okay. Well, it's not like check your watch and make an appointment. It's now. It's not, uh, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. It's now. It's just now. That's his moment in time. That's why he says it's a favorable time. Why is it favorable? Because favorable in the Greek means grace. It's, it's grace-filled. Like there's enough grace that has come to you that you've been alerted to how you have took time, taken time and just tossed it aside. Oh, who cares? No big deal. But now in grace, God has revealed, I'm still waiting. It's a favorable time. So then the question becomes, how did Jesus live in the chronos, the, the, the days and years, while embracing the kairos, or the decisive moments of life? How did he do that? And I would suggest maybe three things to us, that Jesus was prepared, that Jesus was productive, and my favorite, Jesus was passive. So first, Jesus was prepared. He taught and lived as someone who was ready at a moment's notice to do the will of God. You know, in the book of Matthew, you can see like in Matthew 23, um, Jesus really has very little patience for, uh, for the religious leaders who make relating to him all about the structure of what you're doing, how well you're doing it, and the measurables. In fact, there's seven woes in, in chapter 23 of Matthew where Jesus just says, woe to you. Pharisees, four, da, 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 and, he, and he lists all these different problems that he has, right? And then he gets to chapters 24 and 25, and it's just chock full of little parables, little stories, little analogies that are like, hey, are you prepared and ready? And so Jesus showed day in and day out, he was prepared. If you watch Jesus, um, 
You can see his first miracle that he does at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2, right? His mom is like, hey, you know, what do you think? And what does he say? My time has not yet come. Huh. There's a couple of times where he says that. My time has not yet come. The kairos is not here during the chronos. I'm not going to go ahead of what God says. I'm going to do it in the time that he's told me. But Jesus was prepared. You can see it in Matthew 24, 36. Concerning the day and the hour, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but the Father only knows. What's he saying? He's saying that there will be a time when the Son of Man will return and judgment will occur, but nobody knows it but God. And you're like, well, that's kind of lame. No, it's actually a really smart strategy by God. <laughs> because then it would be like, uh, I was an RA on a college campus. And every week, we had to do room inspections, okay? It was my least favorite part of my job. Uh, first of all, if you can imagine searching the cleanliness of an 18 to 22-year-old's room, you would feel the same, okay? But most of these were like my friends, too. And I had to, like, go into their room and, like, search if they had anything they weren't supposed to and make sure that, like, basic, you know, hygiene was upkept. And it was my least favorite time. Now, how silly would it be for me to post a sign at the beginning, like you get off the elevator on the seventh floor at Linder Hall at Judson University, and you get off and you're like, oh, there's a big sign. Doug's coming to inspect between three and five today. I'm like, oh, I guess I should clean my room that I haven't touched in six months. Right? Announcing it doesn't make any sense. God's strategy for not telling everybody when he's going to arrive makes sense. Why? Because if I knew when he was going to arrive, I could just kind of make something happen in that moment. But if I don't know, then I need to be prepared. And that's the point of Jesus' parables in Matthew 25 and 24. In chapter 25, he says, And while they were going to buy, he's talking about uh, ten different women who are prepared for the bridegroom to arrive. Five of them show up with oil for their lamps that can burn through the night. And the bridegroom is delayed. And so the other five burn through their oil and they're done. And then at midnight, the bridegroom arrives and five are ready. Why? Because they brought reserves. They were prepared. So simple question, are you? Are you prepared? Not just for the return of Christ, right? But for those moments, those kairos moments that God gives you where you have a, an opportunity to talk to a coworker, or a way to lovingly discipline your child or a way to demonstrate love to your wife. Are you prepared for the kairos moments or are you like hoping that there's a sign posted, God's coming inspecting today? Are you prepared? So that's the first thing. Second thing is he was productive. Now, you can see the three examples that we have in production from John 5 and John 10 and John 12. And uh, kind of for sake of time, I'm not going to read those. But I want to reiterate in those three verses, what you see more and more is that Jesus can only do what the Father tells him. And so just real simply, when we think about the, the productivity that we have on a day-in, day-out basis. Are you so tethered? Are you so bound to the Word of God, whether in the written form or His Spirit speaking and prompting to your heart? Are you so bound to the obedience of that that it directs your calendar? That's heavy, right? Because I'm like a big fat no on that one, if I'm honest. It's really hard to orient my time around God when He says, uh, wait on the Lord. I'm like, uh, wait? I'm an American. I don't have time for waiting. That doesn't fit into my schedule. 
God's like, good luck with that. <laughs> right? Tell me how that's working for you. But he was productive, and you're like, well, what do you mean by productive? And I mean, I, I love how Jesus, uh, he just plays with people in our really strong understanding of like, okay, productive means that I get this, 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 and this done. And it means that from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, I'm always producing something. And then Jesus shows you that productive is orienting your time, your passions, your allegiances around the will of God and the purposes of God. So like in John chapter 11, you can see there, it's, you know, it's the death of Lazarus. And it says, he loved Mary and Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus passed away, he stayed where he was for two days, <laughs> right? Like, you're thinking, okay, so you love someone, you should go and take care of those things. But no. Jesus oddly shows that productivity is waiting on the Lord and walking in obedience to him, even if it looks totally silly to everybody else. You're like, well, that kind of stinks, I don't know what to tell you on that one. I really, I really wish I had like a greater story to say, hey, you know, Jesus is all about your productiveness and getting things done. But he really shows us after, right? So by the time you get to the end of John chapter 11, he's talking about how he is the resurrection and the life. That could not have been illustrated if Jesus would have prevented Lazarus from dying. So he's always got the long game in mind. He's always got this purpose in mind for his use of time that talks about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which is an upside-down kingdom. So he didn't go, even though he deeply loved them, he didn't go to keep Lazarus from dying. He went to raise him from death so that he could show, look, I'm the resurrection of life. Is there a doubt now? Because this is the right time. He was ready. Love it. And then finally, he was passive. He was counterintuitive. Instead of capitalizing on major ministry moves, Jesus often withdraws to lonely places to pray. You could see that in Luke 5.16. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Jesus has these incredible campaigns of healing and teaching. And then the scriptures often say, as was his custom. And then he's, he's off in a lonely place to pray. He doesn't leave a note or send a text. Hey, headed out to the hills. You can ping my location when you're ready. Like, he just leaves. And you're like, that seems really weird. In America, what we would do is we would have like a whole Instagram push and we'd have like, you know, a posting schedule and we'd make sure that everybody knew what was happening and we'd be very out with it so that people under, right? And Jesus is like, nah, not for me. And so he does these incredible things, and then he realizes, my soul is pouring out, and I need to be filled by my Father. He was passive. He understood what it meant that working and resting go hand in hand. You can see it in Mark chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, now, right? He could have celebrated, like, that's awesome. Like, he says this, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Okay, I could do this by a show of hands. How many of you in the last two months would say, I've just been weary. I've just been like, 
I can hardly keep my head above water, sort of weary. Or like lifting my head off the pillow in the morning is a feat of strength. I'm just weary. And to you, Jesus says, come away to a desolate place and rest a while. Or in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Is there anything more appealing than rest when you are weary? Like the thing that is the worst is when you are so weary and then you realize, oh, there was something I forgot to do that I have to do. And you're like, I don't know that I can keep up. And so how I use my time shows my deepest allegiance. So kind of in wrapping up, let's talk a little bit about truth and practice, okay? We're all given the same gift. We're all given 24-7, 365 and a quarter since we don't do things in tens that are easy to keep track of. <clears throat> How we show careful management of what's been entrusted to our care is critical. So I want to give these as invitations, right? Like there's a lot that can be said about this concept of me coming up here and teaching you and you thinking that I kind of have my stuff together and that I'm like really good at the management of time. You could just talk to Jessica and you would find, not really, not a great manager of time. So this is as much to you as it is to me, and they're invitations because God doesn't twist your arm and say, do, 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 do. God says, come. Big difference. Be. And then from your coming and your being, there is doing. Big difference with the use of time. So the first thing is just to examine yourself. You know, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 walks through this understanding where Paul has just gotten done talking about this day of salvation and making sure that you understand the, the kairos moment of time that you're stepping into and it's a favorable time, right? And then he also gets to this place where he starts to talk about uh, examining yourself to see whether you, be, you are in the faith. Um, not many of us like to do that. More of us, uh, rather, would be in a place of like, no, I, 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 I kind of like already belong. Everything's great, right? It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for you to sit back and go, do I really believe this? Have I really embraced this? Do I look at the Son of God and I say, only he can pay for my sin. Only he is worthy of my worship. Only he is worthy of everything I do. I want Jesus. Do we do that on a regular basis? It's not a bad thing to do. So Paul says, examine yourself. Second thing I want to invite you to do is to invite constructive feedback. This one's less fun. <laughs> I'll just be out there with it, right? It's, it's less fun to say to your boss or to your spouse or to your siblings or to a coworker, something like this. Is there anything that you've observed in my character, in my words, that you think, oh, that gives me cause for concern? And if so, what might that be? I'm not a big fan of doing that, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's a little hard uh, to just openly humble yourself in that light. But inviting constructive feedback is good. It's good for my spouse to speak to me and say, actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like you've been really sharp lately. 
Like I see it in how you answer the kids. You, you know, you, you're a dry texter. You send one text, no emojis. I'm like, oh, sorry. But the, the reality is, there, if I invite constructive feedback, what I'm asking for is, will you help sanctify me? Will you help make me more a vessel that holds the presence of God and doesn't leak it? Will you help me? And then the last thing is uh, kind of an ancient farming technique that's still in use today called a riparian buffer. Some of us know what this is. Uh, I'm sure Dale would be able to tell me all about it. Um, maybe even Dana. But there, there's an idea here of like there's a stream of water and you don't plant your crops all the way up to the edge of the stream. You have a vegetated area with trees and shade in order to protect the stream. It, and it protects it from like the, the use of the adjacent land, whether that's you know, chemicals that are being sprayed on the crop or not. There is this idea of like, we're gonna have a buffer from the stream to here, and this is, this, there's nothing planted in this area, and what this is doing is protecting. I mean, the illustration could not be more biblical. What about the stream of living water in your life and the margin that exists from the edge of the stream to your productive life? Are you saying, you know, the, the work life, the school life, the mom life, the dad life, like this, this far and no further, you're not going to infringe on the living stream of water. Another way to say that in more popular terminology would be, do you know your limits? Do you know what your limits are? Do you know that there are times, and, and I, I, I would say it like this. For me, um, I have a gift of counseling. The Lord has given me this gift to like, be able to kind of size things up and ask questions and, and kind of help people process through. That's an awesome thing and a horrible thing all at the same time. Because I have such a desire to help everyone in this room. If there were need for it. I would want to help everybody. But guess what? I don't have the capacity. So that makes this one of the hardest conversations for me. You know, Colton comes to me and says, hey, Doug, do you have time to meet? And let's say my calendar's already packed. I really like Colton, kind of. But like, <laughs> here's the deal. I really like him and I want to help him. But I've already got eight counseling appointments this week. You know how hard it is for me to say, Actually, I'm on like a two-month waiting list. And, and I've, I've got things scheduled out. I definitely want to get to you. Can I help you find someone else to help? That's been the hardest journey for me in recent years because I have a desire, but I lack the capacity. I need to know my riparian buffer that protects my stream of living water. And so do you. You do. So that's why when I think of this, and the use of time. I want to close here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now hear this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. God has given us days and years and seasons and specific points in time that are to be managed for doing and being. 
and that makes up our use of time. And how we use our time shows our deepest allegiance. So as we leave from here, might we use the next hour of our time while we're eating lunch together in a, in a Kairos way? Like, is there appointed a conversation for you to have at lunch or tonight with your family or with your life group or with your accountability partner or with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends or with your coworker or with your boss? Is there a Kairos moment that God is asking you to step into? Are you prepared? So let me pray for us and we will uh, depart for lunch. Thank you for your attention and for braving the cold. Lord Jesus, uh, in you is found the perfect use of time. Never pushing it aside as though it's no big deal, uh, but also never letting it destroy you or own you. But instead, the gift of time given by your Father was so tethered to your obedience to him that you were always about the use of time to show the inbreaking of the kingdom. So we love you, Jesus. We ask that you would open our eyes to those things, the way that you lived and how you would have us live in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have a great week.